Yeah, so um, I think it's great if other people want to start taking on this project because I think it's really important and it's kind of a good place to be where people are living longer with these conditions that they may not have in years past. And I think number one is to talk about it. I still have providers that have not talked to me about it. So I don't know if I'm transitioning them or not. That was Amy, a young woman who was once a patient at Boston Children's Hospital and is now a nurse. She grew up with chronic illness and was cared for at Boston Children's. And eventually, as she became an adult, she went through the Weitzman Family Bridges Adult Transition Program at the hospital. The Bridges Transition Program aims to help young people who have lived with severe chronic illness in childhood transition their care to adult providers. This is a fairly new need as many young people with severe chronic and congenital illness are surviving into adulthood as care has improved. This transition from childhood to adulthood creates a number of challenges as these patients grow in age out of pediatric care. What happens, for example, when a medically complex young person turns 18 and then suddenly they make their own medical decisions rather than their parents? How does one navigate the sometimes very thorny issues of sexual health and fertility? And what about insurance issues? This week, we have a very special show for you featuring a number of guests on this topic. They comprise part of the team from the Weitzman Family Bridges Adult Transition Program at Boston Children's Hospital. They talk about how their program addresses these questions. We have Kitty O'Hare, a practicing MedPeace primary care physician and assistant professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Amet Ulur, the medical director of the Weitzman Family Bridges Adult Transition Program. Amy, who you heard at the top, a patient who is now a nurse. Susan Shansky, MSW LICSW, the director of the Transitional Care Support Program. And Julia Roboff, a nurse practitioner with the program. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for being here. I was wondering if we could just start with some introductions since we have a number of guests today. Hi, I'm Dr. Kitty O'Hare. I'm a MedPeds primary care doctor with Brigham and Women's and Boston Children's Hospital. And I love providing primary care. I love taking care of patients of all ages, but most especially younger adults who are in the process of aging out of pediatrics and entering into adult medicine. My name is Julia Roboff Rooney. Um, I am a family nurse practitioner at Boston Children's Hospital. I work with the transition program here um, on the inpatient side and we'll be um, hopefully expanding that role as we go along. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm a patient at Boston Children's and the Brigham and I also happen to be a nurse. That's awesome. Hi, <laughs> and I'm Dr. Ahmed Euler. I'm also a MedPeds trained physician. I'm specializing in pulmonary medicine, and uh, one of my jobs is directing the adult cystic fibrosis program at the combined Boston Children's Hospital and Brigham and Women's Hospital CF Center. But I'm also uh, was lucky enough to be the director of the Weitzman Family Bridges Adult Transition Program. And thankfully joined by incredible experts like Kitty and you'll soon meet Susan and Julia and Amy to help uh, uh, develop this wonderful program here at Boston Children's. Hi, thank you for having us. Um, My name is Susan Shansky. I'm a social worker with the Bridges program. I have a longtime interest in transition working uh, at Boston Children's um, for many years in the orthopedics and cerebral palsy programs and working on sort of the developmental transition readiness for 
young people from a psychosocial perspective, especially. I was the co-chair of our social work department's transition committee for a long time and have been actively involved in the conversation. So part of my role is dealing with um, on the transition service is really helping with the consult piece and also developing some of the programmatic outpatient um, pieces so we can look at broader questions of transition and try to put a number of supports in place for various programs. Okay, great. So I thought maybe we'd start with Anna and Julia. So tell us about the program itself. What does your program do? What is the gap that uh, it tries to bridge? Yes, thank you so much for asking that question, Audrey. Um, well, I thought I'd just give some brief background as to you know how we developed. Uh, we know from you know national statistics that about five hundred to seven hundred fifty thousand young people uh, graduate into adulthood with chronic illness. Uh, that is, that they turned age eighteen. And we know that it differs by chronic illness, but many of these adults do stay at pediatric institutions and uh, mainly because the expertise perhaps doesn't, um, you know, isn't as great in the adults, uh, adult institutions. But we know that we need to balance that by providing age-appropriate care and transitional care support for those patients. So we need to address that, you know, that, that gap um, that, that exists. Uh, we know that, for example, at Boston Children's Hospital, there are 5% of the patients are actually over the age of 18 that come to our ambulatory clinics and our primary care clinics. Um, but we also know that they're so sick that they actually comprise nearly 20% of the visits to ambulatory clinics and to the hospital. So we know that these patients um, who are vulnerable uh, end up being readmitted and end up being in the hospital and requiring you know, medical attention much more commonly in frequency than our pediatric counterparts. And that explains why at any given time at Boston Children's Hospital, 11% of the patients at the hospital are um, those over the age of 18. Hmm. So we were fortunate enough, um, senior leadership, including nursing leadership and those involved in patient safety and quality, approached us about putting together a program that you know, addresses this gap in care. Um, we were commissioned, a group of us, uh, to meet with stakeholders throughout the hospital in order to understand what the gaps were for this uh, vulnerable age group. And thus we came up with uh, the program that exists today with a mission um, that I'm going to read because um, I always want to make sure that we, we get it right. And that is to provide a comprehensive program to support the medical and surgical needs of young adults with congenital or acquired pediatric diseases and focusing on improving quality of life by empowering and educating all stakeholders. And the part I think that's really important is that it has an emphasis on their individual needs in order to ensure seamless transition from pediatric to adult care. But essentially, we're like a grassroots organization. I feel like, you know, we're, we're a small team and we started out with very few resources and we're growing by making sure that the hospital recognizes, um, you know, the services that we're providing. And those services are, you know, providing age-appropriate care to those who survivors who are here um, by providing pre-operative uh, um, clearance for patients who can only receive that type of operation or procedure at this institution or perhaps at any other children's hospital. Um, while we try to teach that expertise to adult institutions, 
um, providing consultation throughout the hospital, both uh, for medical management, but also for transitional care support and needs in order to help with the guardianship, healthcare proxy, advanced directives, and, and also to help them transition to um, adult medical homes. And we're also uh, joined by Julia, who really focuses on providing support in uh, uh, sexual health and fertility. And so she provides that that kind of support to, you know, throughout the hospital, anyone who needs it. So Julia, maybe and you can expand on that. I, you know, I will say as a provider, it's been very exciting to be part of this, this, um, this organization. We have in front of us, you know, a, a, a difficult balance of understanding what the patient needs and anticipating what the patient may need. And the way we do that is we have to be flexible. Um, I would say things have come up regularly in our in our programs tenor that really um, we didn't expect, but we've had to add resources and, and things like that. So one thing in particular that I've been working on um, includes the education um, and support with these patients regarding um, their fertility and their sexual health. Um, a lot of these patients haven't had the discussions or the education that the the mainstream patient would have um, who didn't have a chronic disease. A lot of these conversations have not occurred because either a parent or a provider doesn't know how to address this with this disease that's part of their child's life or what that means for them um, in terms of sexual function or future fertility. And so as a group, we're trying to um, provide this education to patients, but also to providers um, so that, you know, this group of patients can really flourish in, in that way. I feel like we're also addressing this in terms of substance abuse, mental health, those types of subjects as well. All the lovely things about becoming a, an adult mm -hmm. we're trying to address, but, you know, in a, but things can often get in the way of that. Right. And I imagine the patient population that you're really aiming to serve who are, you know, at in some circumstances, really medically complex young people who may not have had the same kind of social experiences as other children, may not have um, had the same exposure to educational programs about sexuality and substance use Precisely. disorders as other students may have in high school. These issues can be a lot more complicated if they don't have that kind of background. And also, I think you're alluding to a little bit, sometimes these young people um, have very close relationships with their parents, sometimes not, but sometimes very close relationships with their parents for much longer than other young people because they've been so medically um, complicated that they've just needed a lot more care mm -hmm. um, for a lot longer with the parent. And, you know, I think that can be a plus or a minus with these conversations because sometimes parents don't know how to approach it, even if they have these really close, well-knit relationships, because they don't know what the actual realities of the situation are, mm -hmm. whether the patient um, will have normal fertility, whether they, you know, will have normal sexual function. These are hard conversations for parents to have across the board. And then you throw in a chronic or a congenital disease, and we have a, another you know, hurdle to get right. over. So some of the medical issues that might be involved might be 
a chromosomal disorder or, or spina bifida. You think about, um, you know, from an oncologic perspective, um, exposure to certain medications or chemotherapeutic agents, um, cystic fibrosis, there are some congenital, um, you know, lack of vas deferens. Um, it, it really, you, it, it spans this group from every angle. Um, and, and even if there isn't an issue with fertility or sexual function, we want these patients to have these conversations right. and we're trying to facilitate that right. so they can make the best decisions possible for their lives. Okay. Another thing I think Julie is very skilled at is talking about sexual health from a different perspective. So if we think about, um, the sort of general education that, that teens might get around pregnancy or uh, infection risk, et cetera. And sometimes there's an assumption that that was discussed in health class or with their primary care provider. But for certain chronic illnesses, there are additional implications. And so if you're on, um, you know, your immune system is compromised somehow, are you at higher risk for something? And, and there may be specific things that I think Julia addresses with people a lot about the risks to themselves um, in terms of remaining healthy in general, and this is one area where if we just don't discuss it, a lot can get can get missed. I don't know if other people. Well, you know, at the end of the day, this is a young adult patient, regardless of chronic disease exactly. or not, and we want to have the conversations that they deserve to have, um, and that they they want to have. We're sure. you know we we are surveying this, and they want to have these conversations. And the proof is in the pudding that they're not having these conversations. I mean, they, you know, regularly um, on surveys or even just, you know, candidly asking them, um, you know, how did this conversation go after I've had conversations with them? They all have unanimously said this was a positive, excellent scenario. Um, I wish that I had, you know, more time or more opportunities to address this. So... It's definitely, I think, something to continue with. And patients appreciate that. Yeah. 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 I was just going to add one more thing to that, is that you're absolutely right, is that sometimes parents, you know, withhold information from their, their children in order to, you know, protect them potentially. But patients are on the internet and they're, they understand their disease from a point of view that they're reading. So it's important that they talk to their providers, which they sometimes won't do. So they can understand like exactly their provider who knows them best and their perspective. And, you know, and to be fair, when someone's critically ill, I mean, you know, sexual health and reproduction are or anything along those lines are not the front burner topics. So we're trying to catch them when we can. And that proves to be hard. But the more education we can get to providers, maybe the more we can squeak in along the years. So, Kitty, I know you're med MedPeds and Ahmed is too. Um, you care for children and adults. And, you know, in most of the U.S., family physicians really provide the whole spectrum of care for people from birth through pregnancy if for women and into adulthood and um, geriatrics. So in those settings, I imagine, you know, a transition program would also be helpful in that a lot of the programming that you have developed is really focused on, as we've talked about, some of the kind of really medically complex uh, patients who may have a number of specialists where even if they're staying with the same primary care physician, um, whether it be a family physician or med peds from uh, childhood into adulthood, they're going to be transitioned to a different set of specialists. 
And, you know, as you guys had alluded to, oftentimes there's a lack of knowledge um, in the adult specialists and, um, you know, these really complicated social issues. So I wonder if you could talk about um, how this kind of program could be helpful in, in a family, uh, more family physician dominated setting. Sure. I love being a primary care doctor. I feel like we're the glue that holds together um, the health system, and we really get to see families and patients more holistically than others do. One thing that you see a lot at a large children's hospital like Boston Children's is that we have amazing specialists, but they're laser focused on a specific disease or a specific organ system. And many times the patients just go to their specialist without really using primary care very much as they grow up. And then suddenly in adulthood, I get to be in the position of reintroducing them to primary care and what primary care can do for them. I remember one patient, one woman I met when she was about 40, she has uh, congenital heart disease. And she was sort of going to her cardiologist every one or two years. But in over 20 years, she hadn't seen any other doctor besides her cardiologist. Oh my gosh. On the day I met her, I diagnosed her with morbid obesity, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and depression. And we were able to then address all of these health concerns that she didn't really know that she had. She knew she felt miserable, and she didn't know why. And we were able to partner with her adult congenital cardiologist to do all of the lifestyle management, get her plugged into mental health, and really make a big difference in her life that way. Mm-hmm. I have um, some families that I work with um, through Boston Children's that are looking for that next step, what's going to happen next with their specialty care. And there, the benefit of being med-peds and knowing what the adult landscape is like versus the pediatric landscape, I can give them some very practical advice. You know, here's the information that you'll need to bring with you to your adult medicine providers. I can be the resource, say, for the um, adult neurologist or for the adult endocrinologist. I can help them to understand what condition the patient has, help them communicate with the pediatric specialist. Um, to make sure that the patient's care is as seamless as possible and that important points aren't dropped. I remember um, one young man that I took care of who, who had a, has a genetic disorder that we haven't really named, um, but hadn't really needed to go to the doctor very much growing up. And then all of a sudden in his late 20s, he got super sick, got admitted to an adult hospital, And the adult hospital had never really worked with anyone with an intellectual disability before. Um, He was very small. He's under four feet tall. And the adult hospital couldn't find the right kind of equipment to take care of him. Um, None of the specialists knew what to do. Um, So I came in as the med-peds person and said, okay, let's have a family meeting. Let's think about how we get this person the care that he needs in a developmentally appropriate way. How do we find the right equipment? Um, And it turned out a lot of the solutions were there. They just needed someone in the room who could say, oh, go over to the NICU and get the small size phlebotomy tubes. Um, Or let's consult the geriatric psychiatrist about how to work with someone with cognitive impairment and getting all those pieces connected together. And then and I get to also have the privilege of following the young adults as they get older and having those relationships 
and um, treating them differently as they age, which is something that even um, my med-peds colleagues, my family medicine colleagues struggle with sometimes. Um, how do you go from treating someone like the child in the room who really doesn't know what's going on, who's on their video games or their phone the whole visit and mom and dad are doing the talking for them to really helping them build their voice, understand their conditions, get ready to go off to college and manage their health. And when they turn 18 in Massachusetts, understand that legally they speak for themselves and they're entitled to some privacy. I have a young lady that I take care of who I've known since she was about 10 or 11 who has a few congenital things, sees some specialists. We got pretty comfortable as she turned 13, 14, meeting alone with me for part of the visit, not always with mom and dad in the room. And then when she was 17, um, because we had that relationship that I was starting to treat her like an adult, she was able to come to me and say, um, oh, gee, I might be pregnant. Um, what do I do about that? And how does that fit in with the health problems that I have? And I was able to work with her and coach her around, you know, as testing for STDs and disclosing a potential pregnancy to her family and negotiating that with her specialist. So getting to see someone grow up and then eventually go off to college and um, and start working and, and be healthy into adulthood is a real privilege. Mm. Okay. So as we talked a little bit about with the issues around sexuality and reproduction, there are some you know really specific issues that can be very complex. Um, and you've developed some really wonderful materials that we'll link to on our website that you share with patients and their families. And I hoped we could talk about some of them a little bit. I guess we'll start with the first, um, you know, turning 18 and either guardianship, I guess, in some circumstances, or this kind of change from the parents um, hopefully being, you know, maybe a collaborative decision maker with the patient and their teens, but then to the patient really being their own decision maker and how I imagine sometimes that can be really complicated. So can we talk about that a little bit? This is Susan. So from a social work perspective, actually, one of the, when we started creating materials for families, one of the things we, the, the booklet we started with, um, which is linked to on the website, was around guardianship. And for several reasons. One was to provide the information for families to understand guardianship. And another is that looking at a very concrete timeline. So when we think about a lot of things related to transition, sometimes people sort of interchange the word transition, which we view as a process, as Kitty was just describing, working with the patient, to transfer being the time that they might change to an adult provider um, in that way. And sometimes it gets used interchangeably. There's a lot of, as you said, complexity. There are a lot of emotional um, aspects around that. But if you take something very concrete, like socialized healthcare in a country where everybody has health insurance through age 18 and then they move. So there's a transfer everyone understands at that age. Um, or guardianship as one. So uh, any patient who is turning 18 legally then has to consent to their own procedures and has to give permission to share information if that's what they choose to do. So we sort of chose guardianship as an issue that was coming up again and again and again where it wasn't necessarily in place. So at age 18, very concretely, a person, you know, the parents are giving consent for procedures or care until, you know, them they're, they're 17 years old and 364 days, but it's on that 18th birthday that we need informed consent. So we chose this as something that would really be a, a prompt almost to have discussions around. For patients that we work with where they're going to need guardianship, it's a process um, to get through it. And just to define and be clear, guardianship is 
um, put in place if the patient um, maybe doesn't have the capacity to make medical decisions for themselves? Yes. Sorry. So guardianship as a court process. So if legally any 18-year-old is assumed to be their own guardian. And if there is a patient for whom they can't make complex medical decisions and they really don't have the understanding to do that, then um, the court can appoint a guardian and a family might choose to you know, seek that guardianship from the court. But we had a lot of instances where um, it just wasn't dealt with at all. For example, so a parent might just assume, well, I'm their parent, so I would still like to give the go-ahead for everything that's going on. And to ask, you know, so so then we're not, we don't, if, if we've known the patient as a pediatric patient and we know that they don't have the, the understanding of what's being recommended, that they can't truly consent to it, then, then we, you know, we're sort of in a no man's land. So that's where we started to really bring it up. But I, we found that that prompted a lot of discussion. That sort of what happens when I turn 18, I think is the title of, of one of the booklets, mm-hmm. really prompts a lot of discussion. So there's a process around guardianship, but there's also then a trigger to have a discussion. So for parents to think of their child as, well, we know we'll be taking care of them, but we didn't realize there were additional steps if we actually wanted to be making decisions. Or for patients who are going to be making decisions on their own, for parents to get a flag of, you know, even if guardianship isn't what's on the horizon, to think about when my child turns 18, they're making all their own decisions. Um, So it really served as an easy sort of prompt, I guess, to have conversations that might be harder. Um, So that was one of the things. Uh, There's a whole set of materials Amy hopefully will speak about the uh, the teen advisory committee did around um, sort of the self-management pieces that that were discussed. But the materials all are good information in and of themselves for people who like to have booklets um, or look at it on the website, but also to just begin a conversation almost between patients and providers, for parents and providers, for patients to be able to talk to their parents maybe in some way about some of those things. So, Yeah, Amy, I wonder if you could, I definitely want to hear what, we all want to hear about the Teen Advisory Committee for sure and your work on that group, but I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about your story. So I'm Amy, I'm a patient and have been a patient of Boston Children's since I was born, but then I got really sick when I was 16. So I kind of have a different view on all of this because It was when I was 16 that most of my issues, if you want to call them, came to be. So that's when you're supposed to be starting the transition process. And for me, it was when I became the most dependent on those around me. But it is thanks to the care I received at Children's that I then became a nurse, which has helped me tremendously because now I kind of know how the system works. Wonderful. Um, So tell us about the Teen Advisory Committee and the work that you've done on it. Uh, Yeah, so the Teen Advisory Committee is a group at Children's that I'm no longer a part of, but I kind of joined it because there was something like missing. Once I left treatment and I left Children's um, and I was only going there like sporadically, it was kind of a nice way to give back to someone that had literally saved my life. And so it basically serves as a way to try to give teens a voice at the hospital because I mean, it's a pediatric hospital, so yeah, there are going to be cartoons in the waiting rooms, um, hopefully a little less now that we've been working, Um, but there is just some things that teens want or need differently, hence like the food in the cafeteria and the food that comes up, like it was always chicken fingers and fries and like very kid food, Um, and we worked with the chef as an example and like came up with different 
food choices that might like broaden the menu that teens were looking for. Um, but a huge part, as Susan alluded to, was a member of the tech when I was on it had said that they really didn't know what to do when they were getting older, like transitioning from the pediatric setting to the adult setting. So we kind of took that on um, as a big project and we talked to providers, adult providers, and we talked to pediatric providers, and we did focus groups and surveys of the teens. And we came up with the idea to make a booklet, um, and we called it the One Step at a Time booklet. And um, it's really kind of what we called like a passport to take with you from pediatric to adult care. And it just talked about like what the steps are to go from pediatric to adult care. And I believe it's, you can download it off of the website that you're so we can linking mm-hmm. to. Yep. Um, but yeah, it was, and it's been very well received. They have it throughout the hospital now. And I think it was just a way to kind of give a voice to the teens in the hospital. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your transition from pediatric to adult care. What do you feel like went well? What do you feel like you wish had gone differently? So to be completely honest, I'm still kind of in that transition. Mm-hmm. I don't know when it will be done, if it will be done. But I think number one, the best thing, and it's not an option for a lot of people, is being a nurse because I know how the system works yeah. and all of the nuances about paperwork and stuff like that. And I thought I knew it, actually, but apparently I don't mm-hmm. <laughs> because it was still very difficult. I think another thing that kind of helped my transition is that as I got older, I had more things that I needed to see specialists for, and I personally made the decision to try to find those new specialists outside of Children's Hospital, where I was referred to other people at Children's some, at sometimes, um, but I decided that I would try to transition those new ones since I won't be building a relationship with a new pediatric provider. I'd rather start building that relationship with an adult provider. Um, so I think that kind of helped out. I also think just I'm kind of stubborn and (laughs) wanting to be a little bit more independent because I was so dependent for quite a few years when I was a teenager. Um, I think that also helps. Amy, this is Kitty. I was really struck by your story that you shared a couple of months ago about your journey into adult primary care, which is a a transition that you've made. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know there's a lot of primary care providers listening. Do you mind summarizing that journey because I think it's a really powerful message. Of course. So um, I, of course, had a great relationship with my pediatrician. I went to them from when I was born to through college, I believe it was. Uh, And then my parents actually moved to a different area of the state. And so I thought, well, I guess this is a time that I should (laughs) transition my care. And so I transitioned to them, to the PCP near them. And um, when I did, it was a kind of a mess because they gave me, the, my pediatrician gave me like six manila envelopes full of medical records. Oh and I was gosh. like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. My new doctor definitely doesn't want all of this. <laughs> so I was trying to sift through it to like figure out what was important. So that was just a mess anyways. And I really liked this doctor. She was very nice, but I didn't really have much of a connection with her. I didn't really feel that it was that great of an experience and I happened to be moving back to the city when I um, got a job and whatnot and so I then moved my care again and the next person was really nice I really liked her but she was going to be leaving residency and going elsewhere and I was like well I don't want to keep going to her for this next like year or whatever if she's going to be leaving so I happened to be at the urgent 
care center of the PCP group and um, someone was covering and I really liked her. And so I thought, well, I might as well try. And I said, are you accepting new patients? And believe me, this doesn't often happen, but she said, yes, I am. And so I said, great, can I be your new patient? And she said, yeah, of course. And um, it's been amazing. And to the point that like now I can drop one of my specialists and they're taking over some of that care. And I really didn't know that PCPs could do all of that because when I used to go to my pediatrician, it was kind of like a, oh yeah, that doesn't look good. Um, Go to the ER was kind of what would happen to me um, every time. So having a PCP that I can really rely on and um, get information from and then get care from has been really great. Uh, So Amy, um, you know, it makes sense for children's to really be on the leading edge of this as, you know, a major referral center on the East Coast. um, But um, I think, you know, more and more hospitals across the United States, um, even smaller hospitals are going to be looking at building transitions programs like these as more young people with chronic illness, um, you know, have longer lives um, because of advances in medical care. And so I was wondering if you could, if there are people listening who want to start a program like this in their institution, as a patient, as a health professional, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, so um, I think it's great if other people want to start taking on this project. So I think it's really important, and it's kind of a good place to be where people are living longer with these conditions that they may not have in years past. And I think number one is to talk about it. I still have providers that have not talked to me about it. So I don't know if I'm transitioning them or not. And sometimes I bring it up and sometimes I'm not going to. So I think talking about it is huge because it's all in the back of our minds as patients. And it probably is as a provider as well. So I feel like sometimes it's easier for the provider to bring it up than it is for a patient to. And I think that's something that as providers, you guys can really make a huge difference in is just really talking about it. I also think creating a space for teens to really advocate for themselves, like the Teen Advisory Committee, um, can be a huge asset. You can use them to bounce ideas off of. I know the Bridges program also um, had people like talk about how they could help them try to create their project. So I think it is very valuable to have that kind of group of teen patients that are willing to share their stories, that are willing to help the hospital. So I think that's huge. And yeah, I mean, as for creating the program, I'm going to look for you guys that are sitting around this table um, because I definitely didn't do that part of it. Well, yeah, I'd like to extend this question to the rest of the group. And crucially, one piece that would be really helpful, I think, for listeners to know is how you fund all of these activities. I'm going to get this on it, Euler, and I'll get started, but this is a definite team effort. And just before I get to that, one thing I want to address that Amy mentioned, which pertains to building a program like this, is that the provider sometimes is subjected to 15-minute visits or 20-minute visits, and a lot of what they're trying to communicate and, you know, just isn't accomplished, you know, they can't accomplish that. So the most important thing, and that I didn't mention in the beginning, is that this is a multidisciplinary program. And so I think you need providers, nursing, social work, case management. Um, You need a group of people that are dedicated to this process because each person can add such valuable information that, you know, that a provider, unlike, you know, Kitty, who really, uh, I think, does a great job really understanding the whole infrastructure and, and how transition should work, but others may not get that. And so getting, um, you know, 
the, the multidisciplinary sort of approach to this is really critical. So when the physician uh, steps out, um, you know, Susan from social work or Paula from case management um, can come in and address some of those gaps um, and be able to maybe spend a little bit more time with that patient on that on that subject. So I think that's um, you know quite important. Um, but as far as putting together a program and how to uh, you know how to get support financially, um, I think the one thing that we did was to try to create a business model to present to the leadership in the hospital uh, to prove that this is a necessary program and that it is an important service and one that can be viable. Um, the, what you want to do is first understand the patients that are in your institution. So putting together, uh, getting an understanding of what the chronic illnesses that are being cared for there, who are the groups of patients who are turning 18 but not moving on to um, adult medical uh, homes. And so where, you know, where are the, you know, those, um, those uh, pressure points um, and the barriers to why that's happening and, and who those patients are. And then to meet with all the stakeholders um, that are caring for those patients as well to better understand what the, you know, the, the gaps might be. Um, but then to also work with the hospital in order to develop a, you know, a financial record of all this as well. And so we were fortunate enough to uh, be given access um, to, to individuals who are able to provide us, um, you know, the, the costs of, um, and, you know, the, both the costs and the revenue of um, caring for this population. And so from that, being able to, um, you know, try to, you know, build a, a, a team, uh, I guess that's maybe where it has to start. Uh, with full disclosure, we were we started out with just hospital resources, but we were in our travels fortunate enough to meet a family who had a loved one who was an adult survivor of a chronic congenitally acquired chronic illness, and we were able to get philanthropic support. So reaching out into the community and getting support from uh, you know those families who have the ability to support a program like this. Um, is also key. And that also gives us time to then be able to build the resources and go from a grassroots group to, you know, a group that really um, belongs on the, you know, on the budget of a hospital um, is, is critical. And so we're building that story. And I think, um, you know, perhaps, you know, starting small and building up is maybe the advice that we might give if you don't initially get the support and, you know, don't give up on this, on this process. And to add to that, this is Kitty, we're also exploring how the changing financial structure of the healthcare system generally can support this work. Um, for example, if, if you were at an organization that has um, a population that includes both kids and adults, um, how can your population health strategy support uh, more effective transitions and make it more financially lucrative? Um, so looking at um, uh, value contracts, quality contracts, or um, the measures being targeted in an accountable care organization, how can you dive into measures that um, are influenced by young adults with chronic conditions, whether it be your A1C and diabetes patients, which tends to spike in adolescence, readmission rates for asthma patients, um, rates of fill of medications, um, and by developing population health strategies around those things, get the financial reimbursements from your payers. 
in the micro level too, within primary care, um, the patient-centered medical home model um, does include uh, some incentivization around transition care. For example, as part of your patient-centered medical home package, you have to have a transition policy, whether you're a family medicine practice that sees all ages, you're a pediatric practice that's aging people out, um, you're an adult practice that's bringing people in. So if you develop a um, an approach to transition care that helps you um, justify your patient-centered medical home status. Um, you can um, use high-level billing um, with risk coding um, and some of the tra new transitional care codes um, that provide um, some revenue that continue to support the team-based care that we try to do. I would just add to that, this is Ahmed again. Um, is that you're during this time and that transition to an adult medical home is where patients then potentially don't go to that adult medical home and just leave the, the medical system altogether only to find themselves in the emergency room with their health, you know, very much, you know, out of balance. So avoiding that will certainly save institutions uh, money and save, you know, of course, most importantly, the patients, you know, uh, you know, the, the all the medical complex issues that might be going on, the complications that come from that. So that's another reason and another area where institutions can potentially save money, or, you know, ACOs can save, um, but also improve care. In terms of, you know, what, we, what we've gone through as a group, we're about five plus years old at this point, um, and we continue to grow. Um, we continue to work together really well. And I think that it's important to mainly have people who are invested in this process, um, who are here for the long term, um, whether it be the patient or the provider, whoever, whichever part of the group, um, we just need people to be invested. And if you're, if you're trying to start something like this up, those are the people you need. I think our group is really focused on um, quality improvement and looking at small small changes and how they may be. So while we talked about the, the 15 minutes doesn't get any longer than 15 minutes, and that's adding one more thing on is maybe too much, but how you do those 15 minutes could make all the difference, right? So to Amy's point around communicating and having the discussion, that might not take any longer it's a shift in how you're thinking of using those 15 minutes with the patient that really might make the, the difference. Uh, so those are the things that I think of sort of on the day-to-day -day impact level, really thinking through how can we do this just a little bit differently and a little bit better, which will not solve how do we fund the program or how do we restructure all of ACOs or um, you know, make sure the, everyone in the whole hospital has a healthcare proxy if they're supposed to. Those sometimes are bigger picture issues, but the individual level, just making those changes may prompt the patient to ask something else next time of the next provider or something along those lines. And supporting team members to work to the top of their license, as we say. Yeah. Um, one of our busiest team members is our nurse case manager who walks families step by step through what it takes to find an adult medical home contact the practice, schedule an appointment, transfer your records, follows up to make sure they've walked in the door. Mm. One of our pediatric primary care sites uh, here at Boston Children's has done a lot of work in a 
um, in a neighborhood very affected by social determinants of health to engage a bilingual population health manager, um, so not a nurse, not a doctor, um, in um, meeting the young adult patients doing the same thing, helping them to identify some possible practices, sign their records releases, following up to make sure that they show up and walk in the door, and that they have the information that they need um, to transfer to a new practice. And, um, and we've done really well in a, in a very low-income, diverse neighborhood in helping um, the majority of our adolescents land safely in adult medicine through the use of um, interdisciplinary team members. And I think as a patient, um, if you're thinking about this, like, yeah, it does sound scary, and yeah, it can be scary, um, but I think it take, you can take great pride in knowing that you know yourself best, and you've been living with this condition or these conditions, um, and so I think it's important to remember that, um, and yeah, the providers are there to help you, but you do know yourself best, and be like, don't be afraid to speak up. Yeah. You mentioned the policy statements around individualized and don't worry about age limits. And we talked about quality and safety for adults. I think there's also an imperative for people to, when it says individualized, really then better understand each patient and where they're up to. So the lack of age limits for those um, doesn't mean we're not going to worry about it. Or just if they're adults, we should make sure that their uh, cardiology requirements are met. But in fact, really, truly understanding as patient, as parent, as the provider, where you are in that transition process so that you can make that individualized plan. And I totally agree. And I think the message that this doesn't have to have an age limit is not to mean that there shouldn't be a time where someone requires to be in an adult medical home, especially our team has been working on how do we handle emergencies that are really best handled at adult medical institutions? And the pathways always lead to that adult medical institution. Um, pediatric hospitals can't expertly manage certain things, uh, no matter you know how good their intentions are. So we do need to make sure that patients eventually and as appropriate get to adult medical homes and. Hopefully those adult medical homes, and we know that they can and they're capable because we, Katie and I work at those adult medical homes, are capable of providing that multidisciplinary caring approach to our complex patients. Okay. Thank you, everyone, so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Review of Systems, your podcast from the HMS Center for Primary Care, looking at the changing healthcare landscape. We had a wonderful set of guests this week. Thank you so much in particular to Amy for sharing your perspective as a patient and a member of the Teen Advisory Committee, and now herself a healthcare professional. To Kitty O'Hare, Emma Allure, Susan Jansky, and Julie Roboff. You can find links to all the resources I talked about on our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu. Just click on ROS Podcast at the top. If you have comments or questions, please tweet at us at ROS Podcast and share us with your friends and colleagues. Please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.